Good afternoon. Can everyone hear me okay? Even at the back, Kathy? Perfect. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Brooks, and I'm the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this noontime lecture. We wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Before we make a start on today's program, I'd just like to give you a couple of updates for some upcoming events that we have. So our next in-person lecture forms part of our Marshall Scholar Series and will feature Dr. Richard Haas, a veteran diplomat and re respected scholar, sorry, of international relations for a discussion of his most recent book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. So please join us here in the Robbins Forum on January 17th at 5.30 p.m. After that, we'll be convening again on February 8th through a 6 p.m. lecture by Dr. Marvin Childs on his new book, The Struggle for Change, which, which explores racial reconciliation in modern Richmond. And now we turn to today's program. So can I just give you a quick reminder to um, set any mobile phones, cell phones to do not disturb or silent? John Reeves joins us today to trace the trajectory of Ulysses S. Grant. Though an obscure army officer in 1854, within a decade, he would be the general in chief of the United States Army. In accounting for this incredible turnaround, we will learn of an almost inconceivable tale of redemption within the context of his fraught relationships with his anti-slavery father and his slaveholding wife. Indeed, a major theme of this talk will be Grant's connection to the institution of slavery, both during and before the war. John Reeves has been a teacher, editor, and writer for more than 30 years, and the Civil War in particular has been a passion of his since he first read Bruce Catton's The American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War in elementary school in the 1960s. And I'm sure that's something that will resonate with quite a few of us here. I got to it a little bit later. He is the author of several books on civil, civil War history, including The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against Amer an American Icon, A Fire in the Wilderness, The First Battle Between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, and most recently, Soldier of Destiny, Slavery, Secession, and the Redemption of Ulysses S. Grant, which forms the subject of today's talk. So please join me in welcoming John Reeves. get myself organized here. Oh yeah, here we go. Hello everyone, I'm happy to be here with you today. And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about my book and um, look at Grant in, in more detail. But I'd like to begin today with a big challenge facing us when we try to assess uh, the career of Ulysses S. Grant. And that is that he, he's not an easy person um, to, to get to know. He's a sort of a, a, a cryptic character. In January of 1887, less than two years after Grant's death, General Henry Van Ness Boynton, who had been a, become a journalist after the war, 
wrote a long column in the New York Sun titled Grant's Liquor Drinking. And it was based on some newly discovered letters that he had found. And then he wrote the article in the Sun, and then there were countless letters to the editors and follow-ups and responses and sort of a dialogue about Grant's drinking during the Civil War. This infuriated William Tecumseh Sherman, who had received clippings of the articles. Uh, he was still alive at this time. And his first response was to call Boynton a coyote or a hyena for scratching up old forgotten scandals. But Sherman also conceded that Grant did drink on occasion. But then he said something which should cause us to be humble when we think about Grant. And he said, Grant's whole character was a mystery even to himself, a combination of strength and weakness not paralleled by any of whom I have read in ancient or modern history. The good he did lives after him. Let his small weaknesses lie buried with his bones and shame on the curs and coyotes who aim to rake them up again. So it's important today when we talk about Grant, and I'll be sharing a lot of insights and ideas and whatever, that it's still difficult, right? He was a mystery even to himself. So even Grant didn't understand why he may have drank on occasion or um, and why he quit the army or any of these sorts of issues. He was a, a complicated man. There have been a lot of great books about Grant recently. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of The Ron Chernow, a huge biography that covers his entire life. Um, there's also one by the late William McFeely, um, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for that one. It's a little, it's a little old, it's a little less recent uh, than the Chernow one. Some of you may have read it. It's very critical of Grant, more so than than Chernow. And of course, then there's been endless uh, academic books about specific aspects of his life, battles, the presidency, um, so, and people have gone into a lot of detail on on those topics. But what I'm focused on in my book is looking at that trajectory, that, that arc uh, from 1854, when he was forced out of the army for alcohol abuse, until 1864, when he becomes Lieutenant General of the United States Army and General in Chief of the entire army. So in just a decade, he goes from rock bottom to the very top of his profession. And I thought that that was in and of itself was an interesting thing to explore. Like what accounts for that? Um, how did he come so far? So in a relatively short period of time. Um, and in some ways it's also a rags to riches American story, right? Remember Grant is a guy who grew up on the Ohio frontier. There were still hostile Native Americans in that part of in of Ohio, when his father uh, was 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 growing up, so this was uh, a, 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 he was a real um, someone who was born in in, in a rough environment, um, and yet he eventually becomes not only commander in chief of the army but um, president and for two terms, and so he reaches the not only the top of the army but the top of American public life, and so it's a it's a, a big question, I think and worth exploring in and of itself. So my book begins with Grant on the Pacific coast. He's at a, uh, a fort, uh, Fort Humboldt, uh, just, just north of San Francisco. And um, 
he's homesick. He was he he showed up uh, under the influence uh, to to a, a payday uh, one day, which is what got him into trouble. He's forced out of the army. Um, he's not even really that bothered by that though, because he had grown tired of the army. He wasn't sure he wanted to even be in the army anymore. Remember, this was a peacetime army. There weren't a lot of opportunities. He had just been appointed a captain, um, but he wasn't that interested in it um, at the time. He told his wife, Julia, um, that he wished to resign a few weeks before he actually was forced to resign. But then he said, he wished to resign, but whenever I get to thinking upon that subject, however, poverty, poverty begins to stare me in the face. So you can see he was sort of reluctant in 1854 to leave the army, but then he eventually got forced to do so. And he went out to Missouri, right outside of St. Louis, where he started work as a farmer in the summer of 1854. So there's disagreements about whether Grant had any unique leadership abilities or whether he was someone who just took advantage of the uh, uh, opportunities presented by the Civil War. William McFeely, the one I told you who had kind of a negative view of Grant said, I am convinced that Ulysses S. Grant had no organic, artistic, or intellectual specialness. He did have, though, by no means incon inconsequential talents to apply whatever engaged his attention. So, so McFeely just feels like, hey, he's just like you guys. He's just like all of us. But he had been trained at West Point. He had been in the War of Mexico, and he used his, uh, those abilities to advance during the Civil War. Chernow is a lot more favorable and believes that Grant was superior to Lee when it came to Grant's strategy, and that he quotes a military historian who says that Grant was the greatest general of the war, one who would have excelled in any army at any time. Um, so you can see there's this huge difference, right, just between those two. Um, and it's this mystery surrounding Grant that I'm going to go into more detail. My book, I should add, is not an academic one. Um, it's nonfiction, but I try to tell a story. And I also talk a lot about Grant's family. Um, his wife, Julia Dent Grant, who was a slave owner. Um, his father, who was Jesse Root Grant, a, a real pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps pull sort of character. Um, and also his uh, father-in-law makes an appearance, too, uh, an unreconstructed rebel from Missouri who owned slaves and didn't uh, think that that was a bad thing. Um, so it's interesting that all these different people had influence over Grant. One thing, um, as I mentioned, a key question for Grant is, well, if let's just say for argument's sake, he did have these innate leadership abilities, why didn't they come out in civilian life? Why did it take the war to kind of tease them out or to show him to be the person that he always was? And so you can see that I, that notion of destiny, right? Um, and that's a good question, I think, to, to think about. Um, on the outbreak of the Civil War, Grant was 39 years old. He was working at his father's um, uh, he was working as a clerk at his father's leather store in Galena, Illinois, making $800 a year at 39. By contrast, another West Pointer who was five years younger than him 
George McClellan was making $10,000 a year as the CEO of a railway company. So two different uh, civilian careers on the eve of the Civil War. One maybe still not finding his way, the other one a leading executive of that time who had not only the, the leadership abilities he had in the military translated into civilian life. And they recognized McClellan as someone who could run a big organization. So anyway, there's this idea of destiny that, you know, Grant was a guy just waiting for his moment and perhaps the moment was waiting for him. So um, some of you might be familiar um, with a book. I, I, the epigraph to this book is comes from a, um, a novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald called Tender is the Night. And Fitzgerald writes, the foregoing has the ring of a biography without the satisfaction of knowing that the hero, like Grant, lolling in his general store in Galena, is ready to be called to an intricate destiny. Um, in fact, that was going to be the title of my book. And I thought, intricate destiny. And then the publisher was like, eh. Um, so we went with Soldier of Destiny, which is a little more clear, I think. Um, and then in order to illustrate that arc, that, that trajectory, I wanted to end the book with Grant coming to Washington, D.C. with his son um, and going to the Willard Hotel to check in right before he was going to meet Lincoln to get his promotion as lieutenant general. Um, and he said to the clerk, he kind of arrived and he was looking kind of rumpled. And um, the clerk's like, yeah, who are you? And he writes down, um, he, Grant writes down, um, Ulysses S. Grant and son, Galena, Illinois. And um, I just thought that was a great way to sort of end the book of this, this great man coming in almost incognito uh, to a hotel in Washington. I'm from Washington, so it also added to that. Um, the clerk, of course, then recognized the name and gave him one of the better suites in the hotel. Uh, one interesting about that, too, is that he had his son with him, right? When he was in California, he didn't have his family with him. And that was one of the reasons why he was not doing so well in at Fort Humboldt. And some of you might know this, but when he was at Fort Humboldt, California, he had a two-year-old son who he had never met because he had headed out to California like a week or a couple weeks before the child was born. And then he had never returned. He was because Distances were long, were quite long. That, and he would go the he went the um, water route. So you had to go uh, from he left from New York and then had to cross at what is today Panama Canal, and uh, and then go up the Pacific Coast to Fort Humboldt. So it was a huge journey. So that's why he never made it back. So anyway, I thought that that was a great trajectory on uh, this ten year period on for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, and, and I thought it was a fitting end to, to this particular book. Okay, so now I'd like to talk a little bit about Grant's connection to slavery. So I mentioned that this is the, um, this is the house that he went to, the estate that he went to outside of St. Louis after he left um, Fort Hembold, California. This is about not too far outside of St. Louis. 
Um, it's called Whitehaven. You can still go there today. Um, this is a photo from, I would say, circa 1900 or so. Um, but it's a large estate. And um, at the time, like I said, it was 900 acres or so. One of the key themes in my book is it's remarkable that the guy who put an end to slavery, Grant, probably more than any other person, also benefited from slavery. So this 900-acre estate was worked by 30 enslaved people that were owned by Grant's father-in-law, uh, Colonel Dent. He wasn't a colonel, by the way. He gave himself that title. Um, so it would be like all of us, you know, I'm Brigadier General Reeves, you know. Um, but uh, Colonel Dent owned that, worked it with 30 enslaved people. Grant arrived. Colonel Dent had given Julia, his daughter, Grant's wife, an 80-acre plot on this estate. And that's what Grant was going to farm himself. Julia also owned four slaves herself, Grant's wife. So not only did they have four, but there were 30 at the estate that they could use as well. And so Grant is someone who benefits from these enslaved people. They, the, the, the slaves at Whitehaven uh, chopped wood, tended fields, looked after children, prepared meals, um, in addition to countless other tasks. And the Grant family benefited from all of that. And in some ways, I write in the book that it allowed him to kind of live at a higher socioeconomic class than he would have done otherwise without being able to get this value um, from these people. Grant was also involved in a lot of the aspects of slavery at that time. Oh, I, I want to show you another. This was one of the slave quarters at Whitehaven. Um, and you can see it's very, uh, it, it's, it's very rough, um, but there were, there were many such cabins to house the 30 enslaved or so. I use that number 30, but it fluctuated quite a lot. That's from a, the 1850 census. Um, and there would be slaves coming and going, and sometimes they would hire them out in return for a, a, an, an annual payment. Um, so how much they had at any given time is not always um, obvious. But Grant participated in the hiring out system and, and would hire some of the slaves um, out for in return for income. And when he moved to Galena, Illinois, they rented out Julia's slaves uh, because they couldn't travel to Illinois, which was a free state. Um, so they left them behind. And... Um, Poor Julia, well, poor Julia, but she, Julia wasn't, not necessarily poor for the slaves who helped her, but she wasn't accustomed to sort of fending for herself. So when she was in Illinois, she had to hire some Irish American servants to help her, but she was not good at uh, doing the kind of daily tasks that uh, most people are accustomed to. Um, so slavery was a very cruel institution at that time. And Grant not only participated, but he was aware of the uh, aspects of St. Louis society that was um, engaged in slavery. For example, there was, um, I, I, do I have a, um, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, here, um, I'm glad I included this. So this was a slave pen in St. Louis at that time. It was owned by someone named Bernard M. Lynch. 
And not only did Lynch buy and sell slaves on behalf of a lot of the local gentry um, in St. Louis, but he used his, he also housed them while he was, they were either about to be bought or sold or what have you. So it was integral to all the different aspects of it. This is very similar to Robert Lumpkin here in Richmond, right? Same sort of thing, only he, Lynch was doing it in St. Louis and Lumpkin was doing it here in Richmond. Um, but this was a, a, a St. Louis in right on the eve of the Civil War was a huge center of, of the slave trade um, and slavery was as vibrant then as it ever was. So it wasn't, it wasn't dying out on its own. Um, and slaves were still going for a lot of money because um, of the brisk demand. And, um, and I'm sure Grant and his father-in-law, Colonel Dent, would have had to use these services when they wanted to hire out a slave. They would have needed a broker or someone to do it on their behalf. Um, they wouldn't have probably wouldn't have done it themselves. Grant often gets a lot of credit for freeing someone named William Jones who you might be familiar with, um, but um, in 1859, Grant freed a man, a 37-year-old slave by the name of William Jones, and didn't receive any compensation for him. And a lot of historians say, "Aha, there's evidence of Grant's anti-slavery." The problem is, is we don't know why he freed him, William Jones. And I write about in my book about why I, I kind of explore a few theories, right? But we really don't know. Um, but one thing we do know is that they didn't free Julia's slaves at that time, um, and um, he, which he could have done. And also Grant was still hiring out slaves at that time too. So I don't think it's fair to say um, that this was anti-slavery on his part. Um, One thing, though, about um, the William Jones issue that people often point to is that, well, he could have gotten the money for it, right? And um, we still don't know. Perhaps there was a private agreement. Um, when I mentioned just, just earlier about Julia's slaves, historians often say, well, he, what could he do about Julia's slaves? They were his wife's slaves. But the problem with that is under Missouri law, the husband was responsible for the buying and selling of property and was legally required to enter into court uh, for these things. So for all intents and purposes, they were Ulysses S. Grant slaves legally, even if Julia, who was, a, in fairness, a strong personality and may not have wanted Ulysses uh, to do anything with her property. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's kind of an easy way out to say that, oh, they were Julia's slaves and not uh, uh, his. And also, uh, one detail that I think is not often mentioned in books is that Grant's father-in-law, uh, Colonel Dent, retired around 1858, and he had his son-in-law, Ulysses, look after Whitehaven. Um, and so in that role, Grant was responsible for managing all of the slaves at the Whitehaven estate for about a year or so. Um, and then there was a, um, a market downturn. And by the way, in fairness to Ulysses, through no fault of his own, 
he wasn't able to make ends meet because his father-in-law was heavily in debt. And so the produce of the farm was no longer enough to pay for the debt payments that Colonel Dent owed the banks. And this was because of a, a market crash in 1857. Um, the reason why I say that is people often make fun of poor Ulysses, like, oh, he was hopeless as a farmer. One of the things that I found in my research, he was actually a pretty good farmer. He was very hardworking. He got good money for his crops until the market downturn. But probably more so than anything, because the farm was owned by his father-in-law, Ulysses could never really get out from under the debts that the father-in-law owed. And also, any value from his labor that he put into the farm was going to accrue to the father-in-law who owned all the titles to the land and what have you. And then Ulysses during the Civil War would eventually purchase Whitehaven for himself. Um, um, it, it, it's a very complicated and Byzantine process. But, but by the end of the war, uh, shortly after the war, he owned the whole estate himself. Slavery was also, had been ruled, uh, had been abolished, obviously, by 1865 in Missouri. Missouri, remember, too, is a, um, a Union state, so the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to Missouri because it was still in the Union um, at the time. One last thing I'll say uh, about Grant and uh, slavery is that you get a sense that he was really quite ambivalent about it when in 1858 he wrote his own father, Jesse Root Grant, a letter and he said, hey, I'd like to bring one of Julia's slaves with me when I come to visit you in Kentucky. Or if I don't, I'll just hire him out for money and leave him in Missouri. Um, and so you can see he was willing to hire out, get money in return for uh, sell, you know, hiring, renting a 12-year-old boy as a slave. And he says to his father, um, he is a smart, active boy, capable of making anything. But this matter I will leave entirely to you. I can leave him here and get about $3 per month for him now and more when he gets older. You know? So you can see, and Grant himself admitted in 1863 that he had never been uh, anti-slavery or even by any means an abolitionist. Um, and that, you know, he was sort of someone who benefited from the institution before the Civil War and then has this transformation during the war uh, where he, uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, supports not only emancipation, but using African-American freed slaves as Union troops. Um, so it's a, a, an incredible transformation in just a very short time. And that transformation also paralleled his that trajectory I was talking about from the sort of down and out to the top of his career. And I, and I think those two things are connected too, right? Because Lincoln wanted anti-slavery generals um, at, at the highest positions. And, and Grant learned that from one of his patrons. One theme I talk about in the book, one thread that I follow in the book is that um, Julia Dent Grant and Ulysses S. Grant had a nurse named Jewel who looked after their youngest boy, but also had worked, looked after all the other children. And she escaped from them in January, 1864. And um, I thought that this was this incredible juxtaposition that 
after his victory at the Battle of Chattanooga and right before he's about to be appointed Lieutenant General, one of Grant's slaves disappears across the icy Ohio River to freedom. And I just think that that was such a symbol, right? That, um, and it would have been, I think most Americans didn't even know that Grant had a slave at that time. Although journalists wrote about Jewel, um, she was famous to journalists at the time. And on one occasion, uh, someone even remarked like, I can't believe this general with his secesh wife and their slave are hanging around Northern uh, camps, military camps, you know. And um, on one occasion, Julia Dent Grant was visiting Ulysses while he was in Mississippi and she almost got captured with Jewel. And this was the weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation. So that would have been a terrible public relations fiasco had that happened, right? Because just as emancipation was, was going to be announced, they would have to also say, well, and also Ulysses' uh, slave has been captured in Mississippi. It would have been a bad look, I think, for Grant and for Lincoln, to be, for that matter. Um, so um, that's a thread that I, I cover a little bit in the book. Okay, I want to say a few words about uh, Grant's father. So he's off, Jesse Rue Grant is often kind of, the, the portrait of him is often critical. And I think it's because when journalists got to know him, Jesse Root was older. And he may have been sort of starting to lose his memory. Um, so he's not really covered until 1865, 1866, and onward from there. But as a young man, he's a fascinating, capable, highly competent, successful character. When he was just a teen, when he was like 12 years old, his mother passed away and his father took to drink. His father was named Noah Grant. And poor Jesse at 12 years old was forced to fend for himself. But he eventually started up a tanning business. And by 1854, he was worth between $100,000 and $150,000. Back then, that was a fortune. So Grant's dad was wealthy um, and um, uh, very successful as a tanner. Um, that's something important to know. And Jesse was also very upset when Ulysses left the army because he took a lot of pride that his son had attended West Point and had served in the Mexican War. Um, so there was tension during this period between Jesse Root and Ulysses S. Grant. One of the things that I comment on, I don't know how many of you are, are parents, but um, I was laughing to myself when I read this letter where in the 1850s, Ulysses writes Jesse and he says, come on, loan me some more money. It's customary for dads to give their children money. And um, Ulysses was in his 30s at that time. So was, um, as a parent, I'm wondering, how much longer do I have to uh, uh, give money to children? Um, but you can see there was that tension. And I think Jesse was reluctant to give uh, Ulysses money for a lot of different reasons. There was tension between the Grant family and the Dent family because Jesse was anti-slavery and the Dent family were pro-slavery. And Jesse referred to them as a tribe of slave owners. And in fact, he didn't attend the wedding between Julia and uh, Ulysses, which was held in St. Louis. 
uh, the grant stayed away, you know. And um, a friend of Jesse's said the reason he didn't give Ulysses money for his projects was he didn't want Julia to get the money because apparently Julia was very extravagant and uh, liked the finer things in life. In fact, we're going to meet Julia in a second. What did I do with my... Oh, here it is. <laughs> There's Julia. And these are the two boys. The little one that she's got her left arm around is the one that Grant hadn't met. And in fact, you know, I think that this photo was taken at precisely around that time in 1854 when Grant was on the Pacific Coast. But Julia was very extravagant. Some of you may have heard the story that Grant built his own log cabin while out at Whitehaven in St. Louis, outside of St. Louis, and he named his, his cabin Hard Scrabble. And it's often part of that rags to riches, you know, he was so poor he had to build his own cabin. Um, that isn't quite the story. Um, Julia didn't want him to do the cabin and was, was annoyed that he built it and didn't want to live there. And her father um, invited them to come stay in the main house, um, which looked better, by the way, than that um, at the time. Um, so they never really stayed in hard scrabble that much that long. But but Julia was someone who liked the finer things. She had been raised also in a wealthy family. Her father had been a successful fur trader before he purchased Whitehaven and settled down to a gentle as a gentleman farmer. Um, but she was accustomed to the finer things. And um, one of the things that is to her credit was she always believed in Ulysses and always acted as if she knew he'd be successful someday, even when it wasn't clear to others that he would be successful. Um, and I think that that's part of um, her story is that she um, not only was devoted to Ulysses, but um, traveled all over the country following him during the Civil War, you know, first in uh, Illinois and Missouri and Kentucky and Mississippi, and then later in Virginia. And she was just itinerant and she was bringing her slave Jewel with her until Jewel escaped in January 1864. So, um, so that tension between uh, Julia and, and Jesse is a huge uh, factor, I think, influencing Ulysses, because he was, Ulysses was sort of like influenced by both and not sure. I think Julia had a, a great power over him. So whenever Julia was around, he did what Julia would say. But when Julia would leave, he would listen to whoever he was talking to. Remember, within a family setting. Um, and personally, when we try to think about what were, what was the most influential events on Ulysses. I think the move to Galena, Illinois was huge because it got him away from Missouri and it got him away from all the secessionists and the slave owners, many of whom were his in-laws. And by going north, he was surrounded by northerners and Yankees and supporters of the Union. And it was there that he met his two biggest patrons, Congressman Washburn, who was friends with Lincoln, and another fellow named Russ Jones, who was also friends with Lincoln. 
but he met his lifelong, well, his Civil War long buddy, and also who served in his administration briefly, uh, John Rollins, who was sort of his uh, Mr. Fix-It. And uh, so he met all of these people in Galena, Illinois, and it was in Galena that allowed Grant to rejoin the Union Army and take the side of the Union and the Republic. And if he had stayed in Missouri, I'm not quite sure um, he would have done so. The reason he went to Galena, I should say too, is that his father offered him an opportunity in his business. And I joked earlier about how, well, not joke, but I said he made $800 a, a year, which was true. But his father had dangled the opportunity that maybe he could be a part owner of the store someday. And that's why Ulysses took that job, because he saw it as an entrepreneurial possibility in the near future. So this Galena um, move was so important that I, I just want to read you a passage in the book that I I said that um, when he wrote a letter to his father shortly after the Civil War, he asked his father, well, he told his father he was going to rejoin the army and wanted to let him know. And that felt like a meaningful thing because he and Jesse hadn't been getting along. And I write that this marked the symbolic return of the prodigal son to his family. No longer able to remain in the moral no man's land between the Dents and the Grants, Ulysses clearly made his choice. He was on the side of the Union and on the Grants. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a key. And that's why um, Galena would play such an important role in his life. And oftentimes he's referred to as someone from Illinois, even though he spent most of his years growing up in Ohio and then, of course, had been in Missouri uh, for a good chunk of the period right before the Civil War. We've got about, I, I want to give you time for questions. I'm going to talk a little bit about Shiloh, the Battle of Shiloh, and then uh, we'll, we'll have some questions. One of the reasons why I want to uh, talk about Shiloh is, to me, it was the most interesting of all the Civil War battles. Notice I didn't say the most important. I think probably Gettysburg was the most important one, um, or Antietam maybe. Um, but I think Shiloh in many respects was the most interesting. Um, it occurred on April 6th and 7th, 1862. And it was at Shiloh that General Albert Sidney Johnston was killed in the, on the first day in the middle of the fighting. He was leading troops um, into battle. And of course, that didn't work out for him. Um, this was also a battle where General Lew Wallace, who would go on to write the great book Ben-Hur, which later became a movie with Charlton Heston. Some of you, some of us used to watch it every Easter. Um, and Lew Wallace didn't make it to the battle on the first day. Some accused him of having got lost, but Wallace believed that his orders were unclear from Grant. Grant was in charge of the Union side on the first day. Um, at, at Shiloh. There was also a writer named Ambrose Pierce who would go on to fame. Um, and then another journalist by the name of Henry Stanley. And Henry Stanley fought for the Confederate side and he famously went to Africa looking for someone named Dr. Livingstone. And of course came across him and famously said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Um, so 
all these interesting characters at Shiloh, interesting events. It looked like the Union Army was going to get destroyed, uh, but it was able to hold on. And um, it was really a remarkable thing. Grant's role at Shiloh caused a lot of controversy because on the one hand, Shiloh eventually turned out to be a Union victory, but the Union was unprepared and the losses were tremendous. And it was thought that Ulysses wasn't as, as organized as he could have been. And some even muttered, well, he must have been drunk. Um, Ulysses wasn't on the battlefield um, on the first day. Uh, he was staying in um, an inn in Savannah, Tennessee, um, and um, had to get there, take a steamer to uh, get to, to the battle um, and, and rejoin it while it was underway. So there was all this gossip. The, the gossip that he was drunk at Shiloh was false. That it wasn't true. Uh, but rumors can be all um, can be deadly sometimes, and um, it was a it was a really tough um, situation. But I make the point in the book that things got so bad on the first day, everyone on the Union side assumed that they were going to lose, and that Sidney Johnson had Albert Sidney Johnson had vowed to let his horses drink from the Tennessee River that evening, and it looked terrible. There was one person who didn't despair and re retained hope, and that was Grant himself, which is a remarkable story. So on the one hand, he could have been better prepared. He could have fought more effectively. He could have led his men um, in, in a more successful way, but his determination and his ability to stick with it and, and inspire his troops allowed them to hang on. And then of course, Buell's army joined them late on the first day and they were able to turn the tide and, and defeat the rebels on the second day of the battle and send the rebels fleeing south. Um, there's a famous, um, and I'll, why don't I end here? Um, there's a famous, um, there's a famous scene with um, Grant and Sherman where, um, and I think that that's the, the exact location of this, where after the first day, it had been such a disaster, but they had barely hung on, but it was raining. And Sherman was like, huh, this was a disaster. We better retreat and we better cross the Tennessee River and, and, and not go through this all again in the next day. And he approached Grant, who's standing. This is, this is from the battlefield at Shiloh. I took this photo. And it was probably this location, generally. Um, Sherman approaches um, Ulysses S. Grant. is going to tell him, hey, I think we should retreat. But something made him decide not to do that because he felt like, ooh, maybe Grant will feel like I'm a, a, a defeatist or something. Um, and Grant was smoking in the rain, smoking a cigar. And instead, Sherman said, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And then Grant said, Yes, said Grant, lick him tomorrow though. And that was that famous thing. And I think it points to Grant's sort of determination and not giving up and his belief, ultimate belief in victory. And um, Sherman later said um, that it was this faith more than anything else um, that explains Grant's success. And in fact, Sherman wrote, 
The chief characteristic in your nature is the simple faith in success you have always manifested, which I can liken nothing else than the faith of a Christian has in a savior. This faith gave you victory at Shiloh. So I just thought that that was a great uh, way because I think it perfectly describes Grant as sort of like this rough and tumble character, but also had these unique abilities to uh, determination and to stick with it and not to get uh, lose his head when things looked like they weren't going to work out. So I'm going to stop there so we can um, have a little time for questions. Thank you. I'm raised a few miles from Cold Harbor. I want you to comment on that. Oh, I'm sorry? Cold Harbor in Mechanicsville, a great battle where Grant lost 22,000 men. Oh, yes. Yeah, so comment on Cold Harbor. You know, Cold Harbor obviously was a disaster. And um, Grant himself said uh, one of the things he most regretted was the final charge at uh, Cold Harbor. And also, I'm sure you're familiar with um, Grant and Lee kind of had a, uh, what's the right word? They, yeah, they, they kind of were hesitant to give in about clearing wounded troops from the battlefield and left them there suffering because of matters of etiquette and what have you. So neither, not a great moment for either guy, actually. But, um, and, and I think the wilderness campaign um, and then and later Cold Harbor, I think illustrates that his, Grant's determination and his persistence, but which could often be costly in, in casualties. Um, and he sometimes was just kind of keep at it and maybe not always the, the best uh, tactics in my opinion. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a, one of his, not one of his finer moments called over. Yeah, for the rest of the war, you lost like 500 men or something. He learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. He learned siege. <laughs> yes. Appreciate your comments. Uh, you mentioned John Rollins. Yes. Uh, could you elaborate on how important you think John Rollins may have been to Grant's success? Uh, it's, it's been critiqued that he doesn't, that Grant himself does not mention Rollins much in his own memoirs, but other subsequent writers have said he was a whole lot more important than, than he gets credit for. Yeah, so great point about the memoirs. It's almost unbelievable how little Rollins barely mentioned in the memoirs. And yet Rollins was, I think, an integral part of Grant's success. And I think Rollins um, may be a little high and mighty about his, he appointed himself as keeping Grant sober. I think that he did help on that front though, however, and he was also someone he could talk with. And I think Rollins, like a, unlike a, a lot of leaders I've found in my career often don't like to hear negative news or bad thoughts or criticisms or whatever. To Grant's credit, he often could from Rollins. And Rollins was the one who could bring him the bad news and say, hey, this isn't working, or so-and-so said this, or whatever. So anyway, I think Rollins is, 
And you know what? I think the reason why Grant didn't mention him in his memoirs is some people went so far as to say incorrectly, I think, that Rollins was the brains behind Grant. And I think Grant took that. He didn't like that. He was defensive about that. And so maybe he wanted to downplay Rollins' role because he was sensitive to that belief that he somehow was the mastermind of all of this. Yeah. Good question there. Yeah. Um, what did Grant think of McClellan? McClellan um, because I, I've read briefly that McClellan did not want to free the slaves, although McClellan wanted to end the war. So mm -hmm. any, did you come across any information about how Grant felt about McClellan? I do. In fact, I write about the fact that when Grant, because of his experience on the Pacific Coast in 1854 with the drinking, Grant had a hard time getting a, a, a position when war broke out. And it, it, was, it, it took him a while to get a colonelship. He tried to get a job with McClellan, who kept him sitting in his waiting room for three hours one day, and on day two, another three hours. And finally, Grant just left. It was just like, no, I'm not doing this. It was very, it was insulting to him. And um, Grant felt that McClellan was a talented officer and would have happily served as his staff, a staff position under him. But McClellan treated him badly. And then I think later, Grant, as Grant rose, he saw McClellan as sort of the, the, the sort of defeated rival, right? Because McClellan, of course, runs for president. Some of you might know that in, in 1864, that um, Lincoln feared that Grant might run for president in the Democratic ticket. It was eventually McClellan. Um, and one of uh, Grant's friends, Russ Jones, went to visit uh, Lincoln and said, don't worry about it. If you were to give him the lieutenant generalship, however, it would definitely, definitely render. I'm sort of paraphrasing a little bit, but it was, it kind of went like that. Um, so, but in any event, I think McClellan and Grant, fortunately, Grant was in the Western theater for most of my book. Um, but had that really bitter experience from McCall early in 1861. Yes, sir. So you mentioned uh, Grant's memoirs, and I understand that's outside the scope of this particular book. But um, for those of us who have not read Grant's memoirs, mm -hmm. I know it to be uh, a literary classic in some ways, a huge bestseller, a book that, that brought uh, fame and fortune to both Mark Twain and Grant. Uh, when when they were both hurting for money. What, I, I presume you've read it. What, what's so great about Grant's memoirs? Yeah, so I would say the first thing is the clarity. He was such a good writer and he gets to the point. Um, he's simple. It was almost like the way he would give orders to his subordinates. Um, he's he's just very uh, clear, concise. He The memoirs is about the war and his boyhood. He talks a lot about the Mexican War, surprisingly, but he skips the presidency. He doesn't write at all about the presidency. And um, he leaves a lot of the stuff out that I write about in my book. So he doesn't mention his experience with slavery, for example. Um, he doesn't spend a lot of time on that period from 1854 until the war starts, which is what I write a lot about. But anyway, the memoirs, if you haven't read them, you must read them if you're interested in Grant. Uh, essential reading. Uh, he's got just a, he's got a good writing style, you know, which who knew, you know, and I think Twain gave him some feedback or someone gave him some feedback because he wrote some articles 
or the press that were long-winded and highly detailed. And someone just said, hey, just, just tell your story and don't go into so much detail. So, um, and then the memoirs were so much higher level and more enjoyable to read. Yes, sir. You mentioned the slave William Jones. Yes. Who, who actually owned William Jones? Great. So in, in the emancipation papers, Grant says that he received him from his father-in-law, um, uh, Colonel Dent, Frederick Dent. Um, so um, Dent must have gotten William Jones at some point. And then I bet my hunch is that no money ever changed hands between the father-in-law and Ulysses because they were working together at Whitehaven. And then for whatever, whatever was the uh, motivation for the emancipation, Grant just freed them um, and, and, and wrote that, they, that he was now his. But yeah, they, we don't have the uh, paperwork. Did you know that Grant never talked about that and we didn't come across the court record until much later after the war, several decades after the war, long after Grant had died. So no one could ever ask him about this. So we don't really know all of the details about that. Yes, a couple questions down here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my question is, did he fear Grant running against him because he thought Grant could beat him, or did he fear losing Grant as a battlefield commander? Excellent question. So I think Grant probably, I mean, I think Lincoln probably feared that he would be defeated. Um, I think Lincoln was feeling very pessimistic about his uh, uh, electoral uh, uh, prospects at that time. Interestingly, though, Grant's patrons, Washburn and Jones, told Grant that, you know what, if you run for the Democratic nomination, you're going to lose, and you'll have burned all your bridges as a commander. So they advised him to not do this. It would have been a, an unsound thing to do. And then Russ Jones uh, goes to talk with Lincoln at the White House. And remember, Russ Jones is a good friend of Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, when he told Lincoln the news, Lincoln said, oh, that's good. And he goes, once that presidential bug gets under, I forget how he framed it, but once that bug gets under your skin, you can't let it go. So he was happy to hear that Grant wasn't going to do it. Mr. Reeves, uh, thank you for being here. I'm wondering if in your research you came across any information about Grant's relationship with John Heil Vincent, uh, who as a young uh, Methodist minister uh, gave uh, solace to a, a, a young Ulysses Grant, and Ulysses Grant uh, uh, really appreciated that, and, and uh, Reverend Vincent went on to become the Methodist uh, Bishop of Akron, Ohio, and later founded the Chautauqua Institution in western New York, and as president, Ulysses Grant went to visit the institution and really put it on the map because of that visit. The, the, uh, the second year of its existence, 1875, it'll be celebrating its 150th anniversary this summer. But in 1875, Grant came to the Chautauqua Institution and because everybody lived in tents, the, uh, the money man behind the institution, a man named Lewis Miller, 
uh, had a prefab house brought into the institution so that Grant could stay in an actual building rather than a tent. And I'm wondering if you know anything about John Heil Vincent or maybe mentioned him in your book. No, I don't. I don't know much about that story. But thank you for sharing that uh, with me. And I'll, I'll definitely look it up. I know that he often had um, the relationships with different ministers. Um, Eaton is one, for example, John Eaton. Um, it was an important one to him during the war. But no, I didn't know about that. So thank you. And I think that's about all we're going to have time for today. So um, everyone's welcome to um, ask John any further questions in Commonwealth Hall in just a short moment when he'll be set up to sign any books that you might have. The round of applause. Thank you very much.